Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fain Lehman of Health Manhattan Institute, contributing editor, City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And Aaron, how was your Christmas break? It was good. Pretty relaxing. I think on the last episode of the podcast, I recommended The Sopranos, which I had just started rewatching. Right. Yeah. And I am now in the thick of rewatching it. Um, I couldn't get into it. It felt, it feels, it, the- like it's, 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 it's one of those shows where it's like, I can see how it influenced everything that came after it. And because I've seen less prestige television that came after it, I therefore like, like can't engage with it. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with this sort of thing. No, Charles, you have terrible taste and your aesthetic sensibilities have been dulled by those cheap knockoffs of prestige television and you've watched The Sopranos. But no, it's 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 a great show and it's one that I think adults, you like the, pre- shocking, the older you get, the more you appreciate it. I think it. I said this, I think I said this in the last episode, like, isn't, you know, the yeah. like, shocking thing is he's a mobster, but he's on Prozac. And I was like, everybody is on Prozac. Right. Well, I mean, I, in some ways, what's, what's more shocking is he, he has these panic attacks or panic or anxiety attacks, whatever you want to call them, that that where his his kind of psychological torment, it's it's partly repressed issues with his mother, because you know, Italian American, so of course, but it's also other things, his struggles with his own morality and with his family, the the deep psychological wounds he has that end up manifesting as physical symptoms, which is interesting. And I think it was probably the first time on a sort of major U.S. television show that that dynamic really was explored. MASH. Think. MASH. Maybe. Did, did MASH talk? Did, yeah, but did MASH? MASH? No, but was there sort of the psychogenic illness? Oh, maybe. In... I don't have to think about it. It's, it's yeah. certainly an instance. Yeah, um, no, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I guess PTSD, right, yes, PTSD is an example of where psychological problems can manifest in in physical ways or or seem to manifest in physical ways but in any case yeah yeah the 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 sopranos though you know kind of brought that concept into the 20 into 21st century television and this is an appropriate segue for what (laughs) we're going to be talking about today i mean because today because today because today charles you know the the it's not it's not it's not mob bosses who are having weird physiological symptoms derived from psychological problems. It's lots of other people. And those, those, yeah, probably also mob bosses, but the mob bosses are watching TikTok and developing conditions from social media. So Charles, what are we going to be talking about today? Yeah. So we're talking about the phenomenon of long COVID and sort of complex section illness more generally. You know, we're hearing for three years about Long COVID, many of the people who claim to suffer from it don't have any biological markers of illness, which has led some people to suspect that long COVID is in part or in whole psychosomatic. We've covered a lot of this ground. We covered some of this ground in our much, much earlier real institutionalized heads. Remember our second or third episode, maybe the first episode of Rust Out that second, second, yeah. Second episode, yeah. But you know, long long COVID is a is, is sort of a an anti-political tool. There's a recent New Yorker piece about a sort of ragtag band of public health activists called the People's CDC who use long COVID as their primary reason to mask forever. But actually, you know, I think there's a, there's a larger complex of diseases like long COVID, fatigue syndrome, for example. There's also the other side of the spectrum, the reports of mental conditions like Tourette's or eating disorders, or gender dysphoria going viral over social media. These sort of phenomena are historically geographically clustered in space. 
our guest has written sort of about this phenomenon of physical illness that may or may not have a, a psychological root about the, the concept of functional logical disorder. He's much more literate on this topic than we are, which is part of why we wanted to have him on. But we're interested in this phenomenon and its implications for medicine and for other institutions and for technology. Before we bring our guest in, Aaron, what's your uh, what's your take? Yeah, so I think it's it's safe to say that social media and various online blogs seem to have fueled at least some of the identification of you know the the, the sort of self diagnosis of long COVID, as well as a lot of other things. There's these famous reports of people girls who watch TikTok videos who then develop Tourette syndrome, or I think in some cases eating disorders. But it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's, this isn't just a, you know, right-wing conspiracy theory. This actually happens. It's been well-documented by in now medical literature. I am interested by this because I think it puts pressure on a lot of the conceptual distinctions that are that are kind of assumed by and central to liberalism, small L, especially related to free speech. It's, you know, the, the typical kind of liberal, classically liberal anti-woke argument is there's a difference between speech and violence. You know, no, speech can't harm you. That's silly. Maybe it can cause you some amount of psychological distress, but it can't harm you, right? Well, if... Merely by watching a TikTok video, someone can develop a medical condition, a well-documented medical condition, and assume that they're not just faking, that they, they really watch these videos and then somehow through some kind of mimetic contagion, they become ill, seems to suggest that a certain kind of speech, namely TikTok videos at the very least, can in fact induce medical conditions and thus and, and most people would consider that a kind of harm, right? They're medical conditions. We, we don't think that they're neutral. We think they're bad. And they can have debilitating consequences. Seems to me that, that that puts pressure on and perhaps threatens to collapse entirely that this distinction very central to liberalism and to kind of American institutions that assume a distinction between speech and violence or speech and harm, I should say. And I don't really know how that will play out, but I have these deep fears that it will somehow kind of, this sort of obsession that currently, I, th I think it's safe to say more right-wing people are worried about this kind of mimetic contagion, especially with trans issues. But I worry that in the long run, there's a kind of logic here that will implicate a lot of things that right-wingers care about. And that once, once people appreciate the connection between speech and these kinds of mimetic illnesses, we're going to be in a really an uncharted sort of philosophical and conceptual territory. And I'm worried about what that's going to do. That's basic. That's why I'm fascinated by this. Charles, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think speech is dangerous, but I'm a controversialist on this topic. Books, books, books can poison your mind. Right. Charles uh, Charles the, 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 the pre-moderns knew this. The pre-moderns yes, knew this. Yes, Plato uh, was right. Never has forgotten this. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that. But I'm also interested in something more fundamental, which is which is how we deal with the spread of psychogenic illness over social media, how we should think about it, if we can learn anything about it. You know, there there, there are long and documented histories of long documented histories of, of sort of mass hysterias or mass psychogenic illnesses concentrated in place and time 
the the breaking down of geographic connection means that the greater increase in the the overcoming of geographic dependency means that you know I that that that, that phenomenon can only get larger. Or I guess talks about everything from Havana syndrome to we keep alluding TikTok Tourette's. What how do we how do we deal with that new reality? I just want to mention in a great guy to discuss all this with is our guest, Dr. Peter Robinson, is physician, assistant professor of neurology at High State University. He's the author of a recent fantastic essay on the American Conservative, What Long Curve Means. Peter, welcome to Institutionalized. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. This is my very first podcast, so if I mess up, you guys tell me I'm messing up, okay? That's okay. We're, we're easy. We're easy. Well, we do like to open with sort of a, a provocative question, which so in, in this case, we'll ask, I, there were a lot of Americans who would say that they're suffering from ongoing side effects or consequences of having been exposed to COVID from long COVID, quote unquote. Is this all in their head? No, not at all. And, you know, the, the phrase all in your head is a fraught phrase for a neurologist. We're a specialty that by its nature tends to focus on diseases that are located in your head. And right. so strokes are in your head. Seizures are in your head. Lots of other neurological diseases are in your head. But neurology has for a very long time, since the beginning of the discipline, had to deal with diseases that did not localize, meaning that they didn't map to a particular injury to part of the central nervous system. And psychiatry divorced from neurology, split away from neurology, in part to handle these sorts of diseases. You mentioned the Sopranos at the beginning of the pod. And the Sopranos takes a very Freudian view of stress. And it's in a lot of ways written as as a Freudian piece. There are very few Freudians left, but the Freudians and Freud himself originally kind of made their bones dealing with what we call conversion disorder or what we now call functional neurological disorder. We don't really use the term conversion disorder yeah. anymore. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. To go back to your question, is this all in your head? That's a complicated question, more complicated than it seems at first. I don't mean to imply at all that all or any certain percentage of it is simply conversion disorder or functional neurological disorder. Certainly a lot of it is. Absolutely a lot of it is. But not all of it. Post-viral syndromes, as I talked about in the article, are very Uh common, very well-known, very well-characterized, not at all unusual for people to be having symptoms after the acute phase of an illness is gone. It wouldn't have shocked you 10 years ago for someone to say, oh, I had the flu, and since I had the flu, I've had trouble sleeping or I've had headaches Uh for the last month. You would have taken that for granted. It wouldn't have shocked anybody. And- And so certainly we have some of that going on. There is an open question, and it is an open question. We have to be agnostic about it until we have a better answer as to how much of the chronic symptoms after the acute illness in COVID represent tissue damage. And there's a lot of money going into that, a lot of research going into that. We are certainly going to find that some does, a lot does not. And the question isn't really yes or no. The question is going to be how much. 
Right. So let, let, let's take a step back and ask you to sort of characterize the long COVID, the 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 the, the accounts of long COVID that are out there. Some people think you know there's the, it's it's purely tissue. Present present for our listeners sort of the the, the cases for the different causes that you you laid out. Why what evidence points in one direction, what evidence points in another. Sure. So on the one hand, you have patients who clearly had these symptoms before they ever had COVID. That's probably one of the clearest cases, one of the easiest to label, for better or for worse. I am one of two neurologists in Ohio State's long COVID clinic. And I should say, just by way of disclaimer, that nothing I'm saying is official policy at Ohio State. I don't speak for my employer at all. But I'm one of two neurologists in our long COVID clinic. And we do have a good number of patients who very clearly had the very same symptoms that they complain about as long COVID five, 10 years prior to any COVID infection. And the reason we know that is because of our electronic medical records. And it's right. it's not too hard to review a patient's chart and see, well, well actually, literally all of these complaints you, you presented to with doctors years ago. So I don't, I don't at all dispute that you have these problems. These are real symptoms. And I'm not saying you're faking them at all. And I'm not saying that they're not real, but I am saying they did not start with COVID. So that's one end yeah. of the spectrum. We have, we have other patients who, and this is probably the vast gray middle, huge numbers of patients who have fairly minor symptoms after COVID. And I don't mean they're not uncomfortable. They're certainly uncomfortable. No one wants to have migraines. No one wants to have insomnia. But, but they're not disabling. Oh. And these symptoms in most patients get better with time. The vast majority of long COVID patients get better with time. And I would say the vast majority of their symptoms are not disabling. So, which is again, not to say we don't take them seriously and not to say that they're not very uncomfortable, but, but they're not disabling. They're not going to remove you from the ability to care for your family, to have a family, to hold down a job and they'll get better. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have patients who are disabled by their symptoms, whose symptoms we have no evidence at least existed prior to COVID mm -hmm. and who are desperate for any sort of explanation of what's right. going on. We don't have an explanation for most of those patients. Right. Right. And, and so these are people who come in and they don't have any, it's not like they had a severe case that like obliterated like part of their lungs. It's like you can't see any kind of biological marker that would Right. Explain why they're right. having the brain fog or or, or yes. the debilitating yes. pain or whatever. Have people who've been in yeah. the ICU with severe pneumonias got lung problems? Absolutely. Do patients have heart problems after COVID? Absolutely. Are there some cases of strokes during COVID? Yes, absolutely. We're not really talking about those patients. Right, 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 right. Well, and so and so when those people come to you that in that kind of third group. What are the patterns you've observed about them? Well, there's not one particular type. There are several types. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, the majority of, of these patients are very relieved to hear you will likely get better. Mm -hmm. That can be a frustrating thing to hear. And I understand that, that 
I don't have an answer, but you will probably get better. Mm. There are some patients that are that are not really relieved to hear that, that are very frustrated by that. And I think one pattern, and this is what I mentioned in the article, is that mm-hmm. many of these patients are extremely online. Yeah. Many have relatives who have long COVID, friends who have long COVID. There are cases of families that all got long COVID. You know, mom got it and then all three kids got it. Mm-hmm. And that social exposure, whether in person or online to other people that have it, seems to be a a very, very common feature. Right, right. How do you how do you know? I mean, the skeptic might point to some of those cases, especially the family ones, and say, well, couldn't it just be a genetic thing? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the problem with diseases like this is that there is for the well-educated patient, and in fact, the better educated the patient is, the more they're able to do this, there is always a coherent and plausible mm-hmm. explanation other than psychogenic. Right. And, and we have to take that seriously. Genetic diseases do exist, certainly. Rare, right. communicable forms of diseases exist. Some the interaction of genes and the environment is very strange in that mm-hmm. some genes react differently to some diseases than others do. Mm-hmm. And we do know of diseases that, while not themselves infectious, were triggered by exposure to fairly benign, innocuous viruses. The, the example of this in the last couple of years is multiple sclerosis, which seems to be very strongly correlated to a virus that in most people does not cause any problems, but in a small number of people seems to predispose them or make them vulnerable to developing multiple sclerosis. And this has been, this was no huge surprise to multiple sclerosis doctors. This has been a theory in their community for many years. That's why they were actively researching it. But this is a an example of a disease that for a long time was not thought to be infectious and at at now clearly has links to infectious diseases. So we do have to take those theories seriously. Right. So same, same thing increasingly with cancers. There's a lot of a lot of viral linked illnesses. I wanna I wanna ask sort of about the broader spectrum of, you know, psychogenic illnesses. A, I want to sort of ask you, you you write in your piece about Havana syndrome, you write a little bit about TikTok Tourette's. I'm interested in other ones. I think on the show we talked a little bit about Morgellons before. Can you talk at all about sort of the history of that? And ideally, bonus second question, if you can incorporate, you can talk about a functional neurological disorder, what what that is, what a conversion disorder is, because I don't, you know, give give us a give us a, a definition for what's a fairly abstract term. Sure. So Morgellons is an interesting, very interesting syndrome. I'm not sure whether to call it a disease or not. No one Everyone has opinions on whether to call it a disease or not. It's clearly a problem. And by that definition, it's a disease. But it's not what the Morgellons patients think that it is. It started with a single person who believed that her skin was colonized by tiny worms and did enough research to link this to some historical report of the same. And 
it then spread like wildfire through a community of people who had the same sort of anxieties about their skin. Morgellon sufferers will look closely at their skin and see things that are not what they think they are. They'll, they'll bring in small worms to doctors. These are almost invariably fibers of clothing and will insist that their skin is colonized and that this is causing all of their many symptoms. Now, at this point, there, there are very few physicians who believe Morgellons is a parasitic infestation, if any. I've never met one. There are some patients that still believe that. But there's something in the human software that very much clings to the idea, or is at least open to the idea, that my symptoms are due to some sort of infestation or infection or organism that seems to be a pattern that humans fall into really quickly. Delusional parasitosis is adjacent to Morgellons. And delusional parasitosis, and I mentioned an incidence of this in my article, is generally considered a, a psychotic disorder, not a neurotic disorder. Although I'm not sure that's a I'm not sure that's a really valid distinction, but delusional parasitosis involves the deep conviction, fixed, unshakable, that you have creepy crawlies living inside you, that they are causing your problems, that they are obvious. And that the fact that they're not visible to other people, it in no way shakes your belief. Yep. So I've seen cases of that. And that seems to similarly be a activation or triggering of this very human mechanism to, to believe that you're infected with something. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned function, that there, there's sort of a distinction between neurology and psychiatry psychiatry, but it can kind of break down in these cases. So, so talk about functional neurological disorder and how when, that kind when, of when we say that puts pressure on the distinction. Sure. Yeah. So functional neuro neurological disorder is a huge catch-all category, a grab bag where we, in, we include conversion disorder in this, but other things as well. Diseases that are a, an aberration of neurological control or neurological perception mm -hmm. without damage that we can see to the neurological structure. Mm -hmm. And that may seem very vague, but that's kind of unfortunately necessarily so because these diseases by their nature don't have a hallmark of structural damage. So we can't really separate them out and say, these types have this sort of damage. Right. These types have another sort. Inside the community of neurologists who research this, and it is mostly neurologists, there's, there are quite a few who believe that we will eventually find biomarkers for this, meaning we will find a scan, we will find an electrical test, we will find a blood marker, some cellular marker that will explain functional neurological disorder to us. There are others that are more skeptical of that, that, that think we may never find a biomarker. So, so like what's under this framework, what's, what's schizophrenia? Like if you have, if you have your voices or, or images that so aren't really that's there. That's a psychotic disorder. Right. And we, we don't use these terms anymore, but in the olden days, they distinguished, I think usefully between psychotic and neurotic disorders. Mm -hmm. Psychotic disorders 
involve a false perceptions mm-hmm. and fixed false beliefs, mm-hmm. false perceptions and false beliefs about reality. Schizophrenia right. is a psychotic disorder. Moreover, schizophrenia actually does have structural features, believe it or not. We have tests that that show fairly positive findings in schizophrenia. Schizophrenia has not only strong genetic linkages, but shows up on things like evoked auditory potentials. Nobody would consider schizophrenia a functional neurological disorder. Right. Neurotic disorders, right? Or what old school psychiatrists would have called neurotic disorders. That's what a functional neurological disorder is. You're able to perceive reality. You don't necessarily have false beliefs about reality. And that the, there's some fuzzy area there. There's some gray area there. Because if it goes on long enough and it's fed long enough, certainly it can become a false belief. But, but neurotic disorders, you're perceiving reality correctly. You're not hearing voices. There are, right. however, responses to your environment that are inappropriate. Right. Well, so, so, so you write in the essay that when you're talking about this distinction, you say that functional neurological disorder or conversion disorder, it's not really in the domain of psychiatry anymore because psychiatrists focus on mood disorders, right? And psychotic disorders. But, but you, as you say, there are times where the distinction gets a little blurry because it, the neurological thing goes on long enough. All of the boundaries here are very blurry. That's what makes right. it so frustrating. Right. So many blurry boundaries. Well, and so given those blurry boundaries, do, do you think medical specialization and the kind of drawing of very sharp boundaries around different domains of medicine has made it harder to deal with these conditions that are inherently fuzzy and sort of blur the boundaries? Well, there are a few things that have fed into that. One is simply big pharma. And yeah. I, it's, it's weird to take it in that direction, but it's very true. The reason psychiatry went the direction it did into medication management rather than psychotherapy is because drugs became available. And some of those drugs work very well, such as mood stabilizers and antipsychotics. Some work maybe not as well, you know, a little, maybe not as well, such as SSRIs. But in either case, psychiatrists, starting in the probably the 1950s, kind of doubled down on medication management rather mm-hmm. than therapy. And that's only, that's only continued and accelerated to date. So that left neurotic disorders behind because neurotic disorders kind of by their nature don't respond to medications. And so if at some point psychiatrists would have claimed these as their own, we're, we're well past that day. There are very few psychiatrists who have the time to try to untangle these. And at, because of that, there are very few who have the training to do that. Most psychiatrists get very little training in conversion disorders or functional neurological disorder. And so it winds up coming to neurologists. It would be in principle better if there were fewer boundaries between the specialties. I don't know how we're, we're all the victims of not enough time and not enough resources. But these patients wind up going to neurologists because they don't present with psychiatric complaints. They present with neurological complaints. None of them comes in and says, I have functional neurological disorder. They come in and they say, my arm's not working. Or they come in and they say, I'm having seizures. Or they come in and they say, I've got numbness and tingling on one half of my body. Mm-hmm. 
So they don't wind up in a psychiatrist's office, they wind up in a neurologist's office. And while every specialty winds up treating this to some extent, I think neurologists do have a lot more exposure to it. So, so I want to I want to talk. I think this will let us broaden out a little bit and talk about the the community aspect of some of the diseases. Long COVID, self ID, long COVID sufferers congregate on the internet. Long Lyme, self ID sufferers congregate on the internet. You're in Havana syndrome, which first affected U.S. diplomats in Cuba, but then sort of showed up in lots of other places and then vanished. But I think people talked a great deal about it on the internet as well. To what extent should you know? To 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 what extent does group self-reinforcement play a role in the set of phenomena that we're talking about? A huge role. A huge role. I mean, I would go so far as to say that without that, it never, ever reaches a high frequency in the population. You're always going to have one-off cases, right? Just like you're always going to have one-off cases of eating disorders. It's only when these things are reinforced, when they're valorized, communicated memetically, that that you wind up with significant numbers. One of the interesting things about the report on Havana syndrome, the State Department's reports, is that they they seem to suggest that the very first people who had symptoms may have had something a lot more organic, right? They may have had a virus. That's very possible. They could have had a virus infect their inner ears. All sorts of things are plausible there. It's the it's the cases that cropped up after that that bounced from embassy to embassy to embassy throughout the State Department, the CIA, Department of Defense. Those are the ones that are very clearly sociogenic, spread memetically. One one thing I just want to flag here, because I think there, I want to just be clear about what we're talking about. So a, a related phenomenon is, of course, trans contagion, right? What's it? Rapid onset gender dysphoria. Yeah. And we, I mean, we've talked about this on the show, so we don't need to go too into it. But, but I think there's, there's kind of two models you might have in your head of what's going on there, and I want to just lay them out and, and press you on which you think is accurate. So, one is you might think a small number of people have real gender dysphoria, and then they describe their experiences, and a bunch of teenage girls on TikTok who just are kind of uncomfortable with their bodies because they're going through puberty think that what's that you know these descriptions fit their own experience. And it's not that they actually develop any kind of new inner experience of gender dysphoria. It's just that they mistakenly believe that, you know, it kind of sucking to go through puberty is gender dysphoria, right? And then that can put them on the path to all sorts of things. Another model you might have is that actually these girls really did not have any kind of discomfort in their bodies, right, pre-watching the video, then they watch the video and suddenly they actually do have a really intense experience of gender dysphoria that is not reducible to, to just kind of, you know, the, 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 the normal discomforts of puberty, right? And it is in fact that an entirely new psychological ailment has been transplanted to them through these videos. Those are really kind of different things. I mean, and and do you have a sense of how often, like, like how do how should we think about that? And to what extent do you think these psychogenic illnesses are really the former model, where it's just people mistakenly thinking that something is a is an illness? And to what extent is it that really they, experiencing it? Right. To what extent yeah. is it like they truly the experiences themselves migrate over these social so networks? That's a great question, and that gets to a central problem of all functional neurological disorders. Right. And I think the very frustrating answer 
is that it's neither one of those and it's also both of them. So the, the problem is that we have a, we naturally intuitively sort of default to a, you could call it Cartesian dualism. You could call mm -hmm. it, you know, an enlightenment view of the psyche. You could call it whatever you want to, but we default to this notion that people kind of have more agency than they really do. And that someone either has something or, or they don't, mm -hmm. they, they either are experiencing something or they're not. And if they tell you they're experiencing it and it's, it's either a one or a zero, they're, they're either experiencing it completely or they're, they're not experiencing it and they're lying about it. I mean, this just doesn't work in functional neurological disorder. The, mm -hmm. the reality is that there is a problem with volition in functional neurological disorders. There's a very clear problem with volition and, and patients are not faking at all. And it's very important that we say that, that patients are not faking, but it's also true that they are misperceiving the signals their body is giving them. Now, a lot of the research in functional neurological disorders is actually along these lines, along something called interoception. The process that all of us do all the time, interpreting ourselves, and it works better for some people than others. Some people are very good at this. Some people are maybe not quite as good normally. Autists may be particularly bad at this. Uh the if that interoception breaks down you're not lying when you say you can't move your arm you can't and the reason you can't is because the system that gives your brain the feedback that lets mm -hmm. you move your arm is being misinterpreted right so so the question of is is gender dysphoria in socially spread cases right in in a clear you know you get 10 friends in a high school, none of them have it up till age 14, all yeah. of a sudden at age 14, all 10 of them have it after watching the same TikToks. Well, is, is some of that a real perception? Yeah, probably so. Social pressures means are able to create perceptions inside our own bodies. Yeah. The one thing I mentioned in my article is non-epileptic seizures and this might be the best case of it because we know these spread from person to person we absolutely know they do and we also know that patients are not consciously faking these their body is telling them you're having a seizure and so they're having a seizure now electrically speaking it's not a seizure right i can put electrodes on your head and tell you your brain is not seizing but their body is acting this out and their body is acting this out without them volitionally trying to do it. So this calls into all sorts of question, some really baseline liberal assumptions about agency. I mean, yeah. You're, yeah. you're absolutely right that this does put pressure on the liberal just, you know, issue of free speech. Like that neither free speech, neither, you know, picks my pocket nor breaks my bones. How can it? Well, actually it can both pick your pocket and break your bones. It turns out in some cases, right? Yeah. But but even more so, it puts pressure on this sort of liberal notion of people as agents, right? right. As isolated agents, where they are in control of the actions they do, because they're not always. 
so 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 let's let's sort of dig into that because I think that's sort of the 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 core issue here even more so than the particulars of long COVID or whatever. Do you th- you know? I think I think one account that you could offer is that, and this this ties back to my point at the beginning: technological intermediation and human interconnection through technology makes the risk of this sort of social interference and interoception much higher. Yes. That I'm exposed to many more adverse stimuli that are not necessarily interested in. But I've, I've, I have a friend who likes to talk about, I've, I have another friend who actually talks about memes as, or, you know, the, 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 the internet is a collection of demons. Things, things, things which take root in our consciousness and sort of direct us, direct us towards unintended, you know, ends that are alien to us. I, you know, I guess, I guess, how do you, how do you see technology playing into the dynamics we were just talking about? Well, I, I remember reading a quote about Twitter many years ago, which is that it puts, it puts six Sigma psychopaths within proximity to six Sigma vulnerable people, which, which I think is fair, right? What, what you're doing is you're just, you're making, you're putting much more vulnerable people in proximity to much more dangerous means. And just like air travel, right, increases the whole globe's risk to infectious disease spreading rapidly, which it does, the internet increases everybody's risk. Most people are not the most vulnerable, right? Some people are much more vulnerable than others. And most people are going to get out of the internet without a memetic disease, or at least without a really severe one. Yeah. But a considerable number of people are gonna are gonna catch a severe one, and then a, probably a larger number will catch a less severe one. Right. Well, and 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 one thing you talk about in the article is how this process of digitally mediated mimetic contagion then interacts with scientific bureaucracies and kind of bureaucratic recognition to create entirely new illnesses. So for example, you say long COVID, the whole the whole condition kind of was almost discovered, if you will, by activists or advocates who said, I have this. Yes. And then because enough of those people, yes. many of whom, not all of whom met on the internet, but a good number did, because they said that, then NIH recognized it as an official illness. Yes. And there was, there was actually a funny dynamic where one of the blogs, the, the long COVID blogs, had some real crazy quackery about like crystals or something, just, just obvious kind of pseudoscience stuff. And the director of NIH during COVID linked to this and was like, they're doing such great work on yeah. long COVID. Yeah. And then and then this disease gets officially recognized and suddenly all of those people on the internet now can say, ah, see, NIH says it's real, yes. right? Which just reinforces it. Yeah, the 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 sort of vicious feedback loop the institutional capture, whatever you want to call it, yeah, where a where professionals generally, for understandable reasons, out of compassion, mm-hmm. wanting to help people, lend their credibility to suffering mm-hmm. patients, and then those suffering patients or other professionals then use that credibility to define a disease category. Set it in concrete, and and make it part of the science. Right is is a right. really unfortunate pattern. Certainly not restricted to long COVID at all, but I think you're going to see 
you're going to keep seeing it as more and more diseases like this continue to pop up. Unfortunately, and I'm not naming any person in particular at all, but unfortunately, activists are more likely to show up for meetings. Yeah. Right? Activists are more likely to volunteer for committees. Activists who care deeply about a disease are much more likely to say, I want to be on the committee that writes the guidelines for defining this disease. And so you can see yeah. how pretty quickly that feedback loop develops. Right. Well, and then, of course, once it's recognized and there's a unit within IH devoted to long COVID that activists come to join, mm -hmm. they are develop entrenched incentive structures to continue to believe in the disease, yeah. right? Even if upon even if a bunch of evidence came along complicating or casting doubt on the activist characterization of it, of course they're not going to want to acknowledge that research. Yes. Right. The the nature of science is such in 2022, then you're going to get mountains of data on whatever you study. Absolute mountains of data. And some of that data is going to point in one direction and some is going to point in another. And this would be true of any disease, yeah. right? And this is this is why, you know, if you sued an agribusiness conglomerate for its product being carcinogenic, they would be able to find scientists who swore up and down that it was not. And you'd be able to find scientists who swore up and down that it was because there's just so much data. This is true of long COVID. It's going to be true of any disease. I 100% believe that we will find more biomarkers for long COVID. I mean, we're doing we're doing autopsies and finding bioreplication. People are finding microclots. People are looking at mast cell activation and dysautonomia. Of course, we're going to find positive results. None of these results are going to prove strong enough to serve as a clear biomarker for the disease for everybody mm -hmm. but but some of them may be will will give you room to stand on to argue for a certain perception of the disease so 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 let me go towards sort of another another angle on Aaron sharing sort of the bureaucratic side of this the kind of bureaucratic affirmation I think another phenomenon that as a layperson you observe in these cases is sort of disease becoming an identity or you know occasion as a sufferer of X being very important to the you know the, the the incentive for perpetuating the disease is that is that something that you know makes sense that plays out in your experiences so how should we think about that so i always tell my patients and in, in the kindest and most respectful way possible i i don't think this disease defines you i really don't think this disease defines you and i don't and i think one of the worst things you can do as a patient is let a disease define you now there are all sorts of reasons for that. But one big reason in long COVID is it makes it less likely you'll get better. Because what that does is it creates incentives for your symptoms to recur. The in functional neurological disorder, despite the fact that we don't think of it as volitional, we do know that it can increase if, if it is linked to rewards. And now I'll give you the best sort of divorce from long COVID example that I can give you in the world of headaches. So I'm boarded in headache medicine. Headache is most of my outpatient practice, the majority of it. And we've known since the 1980s that the biggest factor in post-traumatic, in recovery from post-traumatic headaches suffered on the job is whether you have litigation pending. This is, this is, very clear. It's been replicated in multiple studies. I know that 
if you have a financial incentive for your headaches to remain, they are much less likely to get better. And that doesn't mean you're faking it, right? It means you're perceiving a headache in your body. And the more you perceive it, the more you reinforce that loop, that grew those synapses in mm-hmm. your brain. The more you reinforce that, the more you feel the headache. And the same could be said of disability for headaches. Uh, in my clinic, we we don't fill out disability paperwork for migraine. I'm not the other doctors and I are kind of in agreement on that. And there's several reasons for that, but one reason for that is that headache disability for headache tends to mean you'll never get better from the headache. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting you say this because one of our earlier episodes was with a professor law at UC San Diego, Gail Harriet, who talked about how there was a huge rise in sexual harassment claims once the law allowed you to recover damages for those claims, which it used to not, right? And so this is like a parallel medical example. Like, well, once there's financial incentive for you to have headaches, you you have them. Or whatever you incentivize. Right. And why well, and also as I even understand it, one one could also be genuinely stressed or distressed at the fact that they have headaches. Sure. And so if they think that they have headaches and then that stresses them out, couldn't that also be like yes, a self-fulfilling? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, so that which goes to show how it's it's yeah. it's overdetermined. It's not purely it's it multiple things kind of are happening at once. So so on the identity thing, I, I do want to ask one more kind of question, because I just think it's an elephant in the room, especially with long COVID, is how the construction of of an identity around disease tends to now be associated with certain political subcultures. I mean, one thing I joke about, but it's really true, is that when I see people talk about long COVID on Twitter, I always go to their bios like to, to see what yeah. they say. And not always, but most of the time they have at least one of the following in their bios, Black Lives Matter or their pronouns. Not always, but usually. Do you have any thoughts on sort of the the interplay between kind of the social mimetic contagion stuff and then the political stuff with long COVID, but also potentially other things? Yeah. One One of the strangest phenomena I noticed when I started seeing patients in our long COVID clinic is they started sending us vaccine patients as well, patients who developed symptoms after getting the COVID vaccine. And they had the same sort of symptoms. Mm. I've um, noticed this too. And you can you can see th- Yeah. So sorry, just can I interject on Twitter? Whenever I see people saying the vaccine caused X, Y, or Z horrible thing yeah. to me or my family member, I I click on their bio and not always, but often. MAGA or an American flag is in the bio. And I'm like, hmm, wonder what's going on here. It's it's different social clusters, right? They have different social clusters. They have different anxieties. They have friends with different ailments. And so they they develop the same symptoms, but with different etiologies, different attributions, different things that caused it, right? And it's it's sad. It's it's a little bit. It's a little bit heartbreaking in that these yeah. these are really all the same people, you know? Mm-hmm. They're not that different. They really are the same people. They just happen to be on different Facebook pages. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. So so I you know, we wanna we wanna move towards sort of closing thoughts in, in just a minute or two. But I guess, you know, one one very other thing that a practical takeaway, you know, cause so 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 I think you sort of agreed this is a this is a rising problem, not just long COVID, but in our in our sort of collective mental life in general, 
is 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 there a response how do you how do you you know either on an individual level how do you guard yourself against fnd or is that you know as 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 a policy matter are there are there ways that we should be thinking about this socially politically etc what are the what are the what are the practical implications well you know the the first rule when you're in a hole is to stop digging and if i were emperor of the universe and i'm not and i never will be I think I would do everything I could to remove media hysteria about long COVID, influencers who are promoting their their vision of fear about long COVID, and financial incentives for long COVID. And I don't I don't mean not caring for and providing medical care for patients. That's not what I mean at all. I mean pumping billions of dollars in research monies to people who will take that money and build a career off of it. And as they build a career off of it, entrench on the idea that this must be a disease of type X, Y, or Z. The more money you push out, the harder it's going to be to walk this back. I don't at all mean we shouldn't care for patients because we should. That means giving them appropriate testing, to rule out things we can treat. That means treating them appropriately, whether that's with medicines that treat their symptoms, Mm -hmm. other therapies that treat their symptoms. And that does mean looking hard for reasonable explanations, but it doesn't mean pumping money at the problem. Right. And I mean, I suppose there's sort of an inherent tension there, right? Because to the extent there are actually biological causes of long COVID in some cases, you need money to research and figure those out. But, yes. you know, the danger is if you spend too much money, it will just slosh around and, and create these incentive problems. I, don't, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the right balance there is, but that seems like a kind of deep and fundamental trade-off that you can't really get away from. Yeah, well, I guess we should move to closing thoughts. Charles, what, what are you left with? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, in some, in some senses, we just got to the surface. I look forward to, you know, some, so, somebody should listen to this episode and then give Peter a book contract. I would I would read that. I agree. That's 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 my first recommendation. No, you know I think I think you said at the beginning there were, there were real problems for the temporary world model if in fact ideas are dangerous. And as I said, I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm an exponent of the idea that ideas are dangerous. I think this is a piece of pre-modern wisdom that we have lost. That we you know we, we there's there's certain there's obviously value to the notion if you believe yourself to be a sort of sovereign individual who has full autonomy, you will probably behave in a more autonomous fashion. It's it's quite useful. It's it's socially beneficial for me to believe this. But you know, I think I think that a part of why diseases like the kind that we're talking about are interesting is because it suggests that we are more suggestible than we like to believe that lots of behavior is is more product of social pressure than we like to believe. And so therefore the way that social institutions shape us matters a great deal. There's a you know in in the in the in the, in the tradition of my icon, James Q. Wilson, Wilson writes about the sort of model of society's entity, you know, humans as things that need to be educated into moral agents, society's entity that educates people into moral agency. You know, I think when you're, when you're hostile, the, the individualist frame, so the pure individualist frame is part of, engenders hostility to society and its educative function. I think so once you accept that, like, something's going to get in there, it's got to be something good or something bad. We can much more open to saying matters to society, you know, that, that society's moral shaping, be active, and we care about the values that's propagating. What are, what are your thoughts, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. And, you know, as, as, as the 
perhaps as the more classically liberally inclined person on the podcast, I'll just say that this conversation has only reinforced my fears about what what the spread of these mimetic psychogenic illnesses will do because it really does i mean even more than i initially realized it clearly does yeah, what's the is this there's this there's this famous philosopher quine he talks about kind of how you have this holistic constellation of beliefs and different things can kind of push at the constellation and eventually he, he there's the phrase like quinean bazooka like something that just completely upends the sort of entirety of your worldview and I worry that psychogenic illnesses may be a bit like this for liberalism. And I, I'm, I'm left thinking, Jesus, this might really just obliterate a lot of good stuff we have. I, I would say, though, on a more just personal note, and this, this is part of what I, I, why I found this interesting, is, I mean, I've experienced some, not, I don't know if it's really mimetically transmitted, but, I, you know, I, I, sometimes if I'm, like, anxious, I'll get physically nauseated, and I briefly when I was in middle school, had like an incident where one summer, right, like I, I got like a stomach bug, I was sick. And then it was kind of like, you know, they, they took a bunch of tests, and they ruled out like all the bacteria. I mean, I think it was just I kind of memed myself into continuing to feel nauseated. And eventually it went away. But like, th this can happen even without an external, like, like a like a social trigger. And I think that should just go to tell you, A, you know, it's normal, it's okay if you're suffering, whatever. But B, like, this is a real thing, and the internet just adds a whole other layer to it. You know, as much, uh, even even beyond the concerns about liberalism, I would say, look, it's, it's not fun to have a condition like this, right? No. And just in the interest of making people feel better, we should be thinking about how to treat these illnesses, even if they are psychogenic, because like yes. it sucks to feel nauseated. Yes. And you can, I mean, I've even been in the situation where I know I'm nauseated because of stress or anxiety, and I know it's not physical, but I'm still nauseated. And it's like, and I still can't eat. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we why don't we go from there to some recommendations? Aaron, what's what's your recommendation for our list through listeners this week? Yeah, so I've been recommending a lot of TV, but this this is really an on-point recommendation. Better Call Saul. The reason I recommend it is because one of the main characters has effectively a disease like what we've been talking about, where it's clearly psychological, there's no physical... He think, Basically, he thinks he's allergic to electricity, and there's no evidence for it, and they show throughout the show, it's it's all in his head. But it is debilitating, and he suffers physical symptoms, including fainting, if he is exposed to electricity for too long. And it's and it, it offers a very, I think, realistic and kind of heartrending portrayal of what these kinds of illnesses can do, not just to people, but also to their relationships with those around them. And also, Better Call Saul, same guy who created Breaking Bad, terrific show. You know, Vince Gilligan is a genius. Everyone should watch it. I'm gonna plug. I I I went back. I was as soon as I figured I've done this one before. I I couldn't find evidence that I've done it before. That doesn't mean I haven't. But it's topical. So either recommended the first time, recommended again, which is Ethan Waters' book, Crazy Like Us: The Globalization of the American Psyche, a a, a, a classic. Have you read this, Aaron? I have not, but it sounds yeah, like I'm something gonna, I would enjoy. I'm send you a copy because um, oh you'll get a huge kick out of it. No, so so it's a series of case studies of the way in which the manifestation of mental illness is culture-bound and the way in which the spread of American culture causes dramatic changes in how people manifest 
A, how people manifest mental illness, but B, which mental illnesses are sort of available for people to cognize at all. So for, he talks, for example, I think it's anorexia in Japan and how the appearance of anorexia shifts dramatically after the arrival of Western culture. It's a great book. Influenced a lot of people I know. Influenced me. I strongly recommend it. Peter, do you have a recommendation for our listeners, from your own work, from others? Please fire away. Well, Crazy Like is a great book, by the way. I do recommend it to everybody. I, I'd recommend another book by Elaine Showalter, who was, I guess is, I guess she's probably retired, a an English professor and a feminist and scholar of Victorian literature who wrote a book in 96, I think, called Histories, spelled as you would expect it to be spelled, H-Y-S-T-O-R-I-E-S. And it's brilliant. It's, it's the best book I've read on psychogenic illness and hysteria. And she got canceled for it before canceling was a thing, or at least they tried to. But a brilliant book. She talks about Gulf War syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, PTSD, a lot of other sacred cows. And she does it as a, as a literary theorist. Fantastic book. Wow. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Peter, for joining us on Institutionalized. Thanks, uh, guys. Pleasure being here. Yeah. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, diagnoses you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sidbarium. I think that's about all the time that we're giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Finn Lehman. I'm Aaron Sidbarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. 